Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome, everyone, to this Federalist Society virtual event on law and corporate social responsibility, open to the public and sponsored by FedSoc's Corporations, Securities, and Antitrust Practice Group, Administrative Law Practice Group, and In-House Counsel Working Group, a new project by the Federalist Society. I'm Nick Marr, Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. Um, I'm just going to introduce our moderator before he takes the program away. Uh, but first, a couple notes. And please note that all expressions of opinion on today's call are those of our experts. Um, second, time permitting, we'll be taking audience questions via chat. So please send those in and we'll take them as we can. Um, we're very honored to have this morning as our moderator, Mr. Paul Atkins. He's CEO at Potomac Global Partners and himself a former commissioner of the SEC. Now with that, Mr. Paul Atkins, thanks very much for being with us. The floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Nick, and it's a pleasure being here. And thank you very much to the Federal Society for uh, providing this platform and sponsoring uh, this uh, this event. I'm looking very much forward to our discussion. And so uh, today we have two lions of the uh, corporate uh, governance uh, jurisprudence uh, area. Um, first, uh, Commissioner Alad Roisman, who's uh, Commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and he's been Commissioner since uh, September 2018. Uh, before that, he was a counsel, chief counsel for the uh, Senate Committee on Banking, uh, and where he um, advised multiple committee chairmen on securities and financial regulation and uh, matters coming before the committee. Before that, he uh, uh, served as counsel to SEC Commissioner Dan Gallagher, and before that, uh, he was uh, with the New York Stock Exchange in New York and at the firm of uh, Millbank Tweed. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Commissioner, for being with us today. Um, and then uh, we also have uh, Justice Myron Steele, who uh, is uh, former uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Delaware from uh, 2004 to 2013. He's currently a partner at Potter Anderson Caroon's uh, law firm in and corporate group in, in Delaware. <clears throat> and. Justice Steele has held so many positions in the judiciary. He was 25 years uh, on the bench in various uh, positions in the Superior Court, uh, Vice Chancellor, and of course on the Supreme Court of Delaware. He held the Deputy uh, AG spot in Delaware and also Delaware State Attorney. Um, he's presided over all sorts of uh, major corporate litigation and uh, LLC sorts of uh, governance disputes. He writes frequently on corporate governance issues. He's an adjunct professor, uh, at, has been at a, a several law schools, including Pennsylvania and, and Virginia, and he's also a retired colonel in the uh, Delaware um, Army National Guard and was in active service before that. So thank you very much, uh, Justice, uh, for uh, spending some time with us today. So I think uh, the, the, the thing that has uh, 
precipitated our discussion here and our topic regarding uh, corporate governance and social responsibility of corporations is the 50th anniversary of a role, a, a very important article that uh, Milton Friedman published back in September 1970, where he outlined his uh, ideas regarding uh, the, the title of the piece was the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. And back in those days was the start of corporate social responsibility, CSR, which we've seen now 50 years later, um, you know, still very active. It's kind of uh, transformed and uh, even in nomenclature, and we call it now environmental, social, and governance uh, issues uh, for corporations, uh, and including some uh, uh, some folks who call it stakeholder governance rather than shareholder governance. But Milton Friedman uh, was truly the happy warrior. And there is no better ambassador of free markets and free enterprise uh, than Milton was. He always had a smile on his face and always a funny quip to make his points. And so for those of you who are listening and if you've never seen him do his discussion with Phil Donahue, who was a talk show host back in the 70s and 80s, um, that is one that you should look up on YouTube or elsewhere. But Milton just uh, uh, had very superb responses and deflections of uh, Phil Donahue's loaded, one-sided questions that left the always loquacious Phil Donahue completely speechless. So that is something to watch, and, and I really commend it to your, to your time. So let's dive into some of the uh, topics uh, that we have today because we don't have that much time. And so I thought maybe to try to lay the groundwork, maybe we should start with um, uh, Justice Steele and just talk a little bit about the, um, the aspect of Delaware law with respect to fiduciary your duty of a corporation and uh, of directors, because the, the discussion between maximization of uh, shareholder value that Milton uh, was uh, uh, expounding versus some of the folks who say, no, 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 that is not right, that we should have more of a stakeholder capitalism sort of approach. Uh, where does that fall in Delaware jurisprudence and how do the courts in Delaware look at such a uh, question. There was a time when I could tell you exactly where I thought the Delaware courts were going with some confidence because I had a role in the outcome. Nevertheless, I think Delaware has built a foundation over the years of predictability, consistency, and clarity that allows me to suggest where Delaware would come out in any debate concerning the concept of either stakeholder governance or ESG or whether they are conflated in some way. People should think two things. First, 51% of the publicly traded corporations in the United States are chartered in Delaware and 67% of the Fortune 500. That means Delaware has a role of some significance. I would urge people not to conflate stakeholder governance with ESG. Delaware's law and its framework and policy that underlies that framework is a non-prescriptive enabling general corporation law with fiduciary duty overlay with standards of review that examine fiduciary's conduct. Delaware cases, and I think Delaware policy will still reflect something that's very important. And that's that 
fiduciary duties are owed to the corporation and the stockholders. Sometimes because of the nature of the facts in a case, there'll be a reference to the stockholders, sometimes to the corporation. But I think it's important when you're analyzing the potential impact of Delaware law in this new paradigm, as Marty Lipton likes to refer to it, the ultimate duty is owed to the corporation itself. It's difficult enough for directors in today's world with a stockholder base that is quite diverse with very disparate interests on the part of the investors to manage what's in the best interest of stockholders as if they were a monolithic group with everyone with the same interest is simply not the case any more than it is with individual corporations having the same interest. Fiduciary duties are owed to people that are beneficiaries of the relationship and the managerial duties that directors and officers have with respect to those constituencies is first owed to the entity itself. So if the heart of Delaware law is focused on fiduciaries acting in the best interest, consistent with their duty of loyalty and care for the beneficiaries, that means the corporation's best interest is paramount. Now, Delaware is unlikely either by statute or by judicial fiat, in my view, to alter any of the enabling concept or private ordering concepts that are inherent in Delaware law. I do not see the Delaware courts mandating that directors and officers fiduciary duties now are expanded to be owed to entities or persons outside those who are actual fiduciaries and primarily focus on, again, the corporation itself. Now, what is important is, is Delaware gonna be some form of obstacle to one of its chartered corporations adopting ESG principles? And I think the answer to that is no, Delaware will not be an obstacle, largely because of that fiduciary duty overlay and the focus on a board of directors and officers that drill down on, consistent with their loyalty, duties of loyalty and care on ESG principles being of benefit to the corporation in the social world in which corporations operate. And therefore, adopting ESG principles, if it's a thoughtful process that produces a reaction by directors that does beyond, goes beyond disclosure and adopts a wider constituency, the Delaware courts are going to apply the business judgment rule and not suggest to those directors that we are the Delaware judiciary or the Delaware General Assembly is a better judge of the direction that the corporation ought to go than the directors who are charged with the fiduciary duties in the first place. So the real question becomes, if there's gonna be a decision on the part of a board to adopt wholesale or piecemeal principles that seem to conflict with the interest of invested stockholders, if it can be shown in a thoughtful way that those steps actually benefit the corporation in the long run and a thoughtful decision is produced to adopt some or all of ESG's principles, I don't see the Delaware courts saying doing so is a breach of fiduciary duty. If a stockholder, the bottom line, and I'll finish with this, if a stockholder would, were to bring a breach of fiduciary duty suit 
saying you're spending too much money on addressing issues of climate change that you can effectively address. By addressing them, you are increasing capital flow to the company. You're increasing the opportunities to market the products because of the perception that you're interested in issues that go beyond the interests of the stockholder. That suit will not be successful if there's a plan in action that will convince the court that an unconflicted board acting consistently with their duties has the best interest of the corporation itself at heart. The Delaware courts are not going to interfere and second guess and substitute their judgment for that of the board of directors or the officers. And I'll end with that as sort of an introduction to where I think the Delaware courts and the Delaware General Assembly will be going forward. All right. Well, thank you. And yeah, we can we'll return to that in a few minutes. Uh, but basically, business judgment rule uh, rules of the day. So, Commissioner Roisman, you've been <clears throat> obviously very outspoken and a leader with respect to um, the SEC's venture into uh, you know looking again at its uh, corporate governance uh, rules, proxy um, shareholder proposal rules, and that sort of thing on the proxy side. Um, the SEC has kind of waded in into the corporate governance uh, area at times in the past and had its knuckles wrapped, uh, most notably in uh, BRT versus SEC with a ill-fated one share, one vote rule. Where do things stand now as you as we enter now a new um, uh, executive administration in the government uh, where um, you know, there'll probably be some re-looking at uh, what the SEC has done in the past uh, few years? Um, what's your uh, outlook uh, and what's, uh, what's your point of view with respect to um, where we're going? So, so thank you. Thank you, first of all, for, for the Federal Society for, for having me. Um, uh, there is really uh, the lion in the field is Chief Justice uh, Steele. And, and thank you uh, for your many forms of service to this country. I really do uh, appreciate it. And thank you, uh, Commissioner Atkins, for, for your willingness uh, to moderate today. So I'll quickly just give my standard disclaimer, since I, I am still here at the SEC, that my views are my own and don't necessarily represent that of the commission or my fellow commissioners. And I, I want to just note that, you know, I was uh, I really enjoy forums like this uh, for multiple reasons. One is it, it provides a dialogue uh, with uh, with people that I don't always get to, to speak publicly with. Um, but two, it allows for interaction. And hopefully, if you take nothing else from today's discussion, is that I really want to engage with people who are interested in this discuss, uh, this topic, because I think it's something that we will be focusing on. And more importantly, you know, or tying it back to today's uh, discussion, you know, I, I really always enjoy uh, rereading important works uh, and, and the business uh uh, in financial industry, and, and certainly Milton Friedman's piece is certainly one of them. And one of the things I think we can all agree is every time we read something, we appreciate something that we hadn't necessarily focused on before. And the thing that struck me uh, when I reread his, his essay is, frankly, how evergreen many of the topics that uh, you know he tackles are. And it was a good reminder to me um, that you know certainly frustration with the political process has, throughout time, led many people to search for for new paths to achieve goals. And citizens, politicians, businesses have long pursued various avenues to further their particular ideas of what would improve society, resulting, I'd say, in, in occasional disagreements and discussions about their perspective uh, and proper roles in furthering society. And what it also reminds me that there's, there's always a propensity to argue that the present crises are the worst and things are at their bleakest. 
Um, and I always think back to something that Sir Edward Coke wrote in 1602, which was fraud and deceit abound in these days more than in former times. So certainly I'd say cynicism uh, has definitely spanned centuries. Um, but despite that, we've always persevered and improved. And to me, I think that's something we should always take to heart. So what's new today that was not uh, new in the previous decades uh, that Friedman wrote? Well, our, you know, unarguably, society has definitely changed. And so is some cases, frankly, the markets and the laws. However, when it comes to, I'd say, the role of the corporation, changes have been governed by state law, something Chief Justice Steele talked about, and, and frankly, not federal law. And in fact, to address some of the ideas about the multiple goals and purposes of corporations, states have uh, been very thoughtful in their delineation of, to uh, Justice Steele's points about the business judge rule and other facets of, of the law, but they've also expanded the scope of types of corporations. And I often think about beneficial corporations and B Corps. And that probably leads to the question of why am I here? Well, the, the role of the SEC is actually frankly very limited in corporate governance. And if you look at our uh, history, um, one thing that, you know, the Exchange Act, which created us, uh, is, you know, frankly silent about, uh, and I think purposely for, is, is actually corporate governance. And someone recently pointed out to me, if you look at the legislative history, um, there was actually a provision in the original bill uh, for the Exchange Act that was ultimately struck. And I want to just get it right. And it is, um, nothing in this title should be construed as authorizing the commission to interfere with the management of the affairs of an issuer. However, ultimately, it didn't make it into the final bill. And, and the reason was, according to legislative history, was it was deemed, quote, unnecessary, since it's not believed that the bill is open to misconception in this respect. However, there's clearly pressure to use our disclosure rules to redefine the purpose of the corporation and also redefine and shape society. Needless to say, I'm concerned about us deviating from our historical role and, frankly, legislative mandate of setting the rules of securities. So the message of, uh, I say the mission of the SEC, which is protect investors, maintain fair, orderly and efficient markets and facilitate capital formation. And frankly, our historical precedent are the lenses I'll be looking through as to what changes the SEC will consider in the future. And to your point, uh, Paul, there will be continued efforts, I think in this space uh, in the foreseeable future. And certainly it's front and center uh, today. Well, so just to follow up on that, then, I mean, some of the um, aspects of uh, what people are asking for today is to uh, what they call a uh, type of a quote unquote uh, investor materiality standard with respect to um, disclosures from corporations, which, uh, you know, can arguably cuts to the heart of the whole SEC's mission and both the, the Securities Act and the Exchange Act. Um, so uh, that uh, you know is will be I'm sure litigated uh, through the uh, the coming years if if the SEC goes down that road. But uh, how is how do you view that with respect to the arc of history, TSC Industries and Basic v. Levinson and and those sorts of things? What's your um, view with respect to materiality. So like Paul, I think you're right to focus on materiality here because our disclosure requirements for public companies historically have been grounded in materiality. And the materiality standard, as you mentioned, comes from the Supreme Court decisions. And it's based on what I would, I'm kind of simplifying it significantly, but what a reasonable investor would consider to alter the total mix of information available. 
So notice the reference here is to the reasonable investor. And if you look at what the definition of investor is, it's, it's someone who puts in money into financial plans, property, et cetera, with the expectation of a profit. So to me, when we talk about reasonable investor, it's making clear that information that's material is information that is tied to the financial value of the company. And as an aside, you look at our historical, uh, you know, how, what we regulate, we are at the Securities and Exchange Commission, we regulate securities. A very famous case uh, called Howey defined how uh, an orange grove could potentially be viewed as a security. But one of the tests, uh, parts of the test talk about an expectation of profit through the work of others. So the idea of value has been inextricably tied, not only in our disclosure regime, but also in how we view securities. So what do public companies currently do? They are required, and let me be clear about this, they are required to provide information that's material to investors. So there is information already today with respect to ESG that is material to companies, and they are required to do so. And the commission has recognized this for long periods of time. Uh, you know, there is certainly commission level guidance from 2010 talking to companies about what they should consider disclosing in terms of environmental risk so that investors have enough information. This is also to an important point that shows that materiality can change, it can evolve. If you look at public companies' disclosure, certainly I don't think prior to this year, or I'd say last year, people weren't talking about the risks of pandemics and how supply chains can be impacted by it. But you look at public companies today, it is a large portion of the uh, disclosure they provide today because things have changed. So to my point is, things can change. And the real question for me is, what about our current materiality standard and our rules are insufficient that we would need more granular or something new? And I've spoken to many people who come in and say, we need more prescriptive line item uh, mandatory disclosure in this space. And the question I always ask for them is, what exactly are you missing? What piece of information actually is material to investors and would actually be useful across all companies. Every company is different. Every industry is different. And something that is certainly material to one may not be for the other. But rest assured, like this is a conversation that's been going for a long time and I'm sure will continue. And as I said in the beginning, if people take nothing else from today, uh, from today is that I am certainly open and eager to engage with people on this because ultimately I do think there's a path for expanding what our current viewpoint of materiality is but it should always be grounded to the principles that we put in place, the Supreme Court doctrine that defined materiality, and frankly, our historical precedent. Yeah, the one thing that is uh, um, very uh, striking, I think, is that if you depart, I, I would uh, uh, postulate, if you depart from a strict uh, objective standard for materiality as enunciated in uh, uh, TSC Industries and Basic V. Levinson and, and those sorts of cases, then you get down to, and if it's uh, like some groups like SASB and others talk about quote unquote investor materiality, um, then you get into a very subjective realm where ultimately it becomes what three people out of five on the SEC think at any one time is material um, or should be disclosed by shareholders. And you, uh, and I would think that the courts might have a little bit of problem uh, with that ultimately if uh, the SEC turns out to be a self-appointed arbiter of that. 
So, but we'll see. So maybe we'll uh, go back to uh, Justice Stevens. And, uh, with respect to this, the materiality discussion, um, I assume that from what you were saying there, as far as uh, Delaware courts go, you know, that's really not part of uh, of the uh, of the law in Delaware, and that they're not really they would not be focused on uh, these disclosure assets aspects. That's uh, with respect to the federal uh, rules and. Uh, uh, and not Delaware corporate law. There's no question that throughout the years, as my successor, Chief Justice Leo Stryan has pointed out many times that there's a federal lane and a state lane, and Delaware tries to stay within its lane. We do have a common law duty of disclosure, but it's focused on two things. When the Delaware law call, calls upon stockholder action, the information that suggests from the company, that suggests to the stockholder, the facts on which that decision should be made, that's common law disclosure in Delaware. And the Delaware courts would determine whether or not the factors that a stockholder might claim in litigation were material to the decision or were either not disclosed or not truthfully or fairly disclosed, that could result in liability under state law as a breach of fiduciary duty because this truthful disclosure and necessary disclosure is both a subset of the duty of loyalty and the duty of care, whether it's an, it's an act that was ignored or an act that was intentionally misleading and therefore breach of the duty of loyalty or simply care, do, do, breach of the duty of care because of uh, inattentiveness to the information that was available that might have been and should have been disclosed. That can result in, in action. Now, duty of care typically is 102B7 out of the picture. But the breach of duty of loyalty where most plaintiffs counsel would cast it is a serious matter. Can, can, I saw a question in the chat that I'd like to respond to, if that's OK with, with you, Mr. Atkins. Sure, I was about Thank to ask. It was, a, it was a good question. It's one to think about. The, the question basically was, what if stockholders believe that the ESG action taken by the board are not in the best interest of the corporation, but in fact are a breach of fiduciary duty because the directors have decided to do it for their own political persuasive views. Uh, would that be actionable? And my response to that is, how is that any different than having a stockholder base that consists of ma and pa kettle, retail stockholder purchasers and investors, uh, private equity investors, hedge fund investors, Vanguard investors, having a different interest in the outcome than other stakeholders. It's to be measured by the board. And unless you can show that the board has done something in its own interest or a controller's interest, contrary to the interest of the stockholder, it's not gonna go anywhere. Think back, if, uh, if the questioner is old enough to remember, think back to investments in South Africa during apartheid. That was a political issue, and there were companies that made the decision to divest, and companies that made the decision not to divest. But the decisions were made, at least at the time, in the best interest of the corporation as the directors saw it. They didn't have a personal interest in the outcome. They investigated, and they made that decision. You can quarrel over it, and you have the ultimate freedom of having invested in a Republican governance form. That's a little R, by the way. Hold emphasize that, as that increasingly becomes the case, you vote the directors out if you don't like what they've done, or you sell your shares in the marketplace because you don't like what they've done. But it, 
don't count on a Delaware court second guessing that judgment in the absence of some conflicted breach of duty of loyalty that suggests it was not done. There's the way it's typically phrased it, there was a reasonable doubt about the objectivity of the directors when they made the decision that they did. Don't look for relief in the Delaware courts, in my view. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, uh, uh, Commissioner, do you have any uh, any thoughts in that regard? Or Sorry, no, I mean, I, far from me to stray into lane of, uh, I think, state law. Uh, I think Justice Steele's uh, analysis is the right one. I, I think, but it also raises just a, a broader issue, which I think is important to, to think about um, going forward. And uh, the one thing I think that's really been exciting about Milton Friedman's piece is that it has engaged uh, so many people, and there's a lot of literature, and there's uh, a lot of really incredibly smart and thoughtful people who've commented on it, um, and especially, I'd say, over the last year. But I think one area which I do think we need to actually think more about, um, given to something uh, Justice Steele talked about, was the shareholder makeup has changed dramatically, I'd say, for corporations uh, over the last several decades, where retail investors used to predominantly own directly most shares in companies. And today, it's, it's actually owned by large uh, asset managers who uh, you know, hold it on behalf of retail investors. And I think the question of what is the purpose of a corporation is important. I think there should be equal scrutiny and discussion about what is the purpose and role of the fund. Um, and this is an area that, you know, I think it's uh, is getting more increased attention as uh, predominantly significant stakes in public companies are owned by large entities uh, on behalf of, of shareholders. And there has been discussions um, by academics and others about, you know, centralization of uh, decision making on behalf of investors in just a few entities. There's a, a paper by uh, the current um, acting director of corporation finance, John Coates, about the power of 12, uh, talking about um, what is the role or how should we be thinking about the economic and legal concerns or aspects of 12 individuals potentially uh, pushing uh, corporations to act in a certain way. And I think that's an important thing for us to think about. Additionally, you know, I think we should start thinking about whether some of these uh, investors who are quote unquote passive are, are truly passive when they act in ways that I think are uniform and one size fits all. It's not a question that's gonna be answered today, but I do think it's an issue we should all start thinking about going forward, given the role that these, uh, these managers play in, in today's, I'd say not only corporate governance, but, but frankly, um, broader economy. Yeah, I mean, to, and to bring up, uh, you know, just a, a particular instance, uh, you know, most of these managers that you're talking about file 13Gs uh, rather than 13Ds, of course, um, depending on their uh, ownership uh, levels. But they also then subscribe to groups like this Climate Action 100 Plus and others where um, they're rather open about uh, how they want to influence management in particular ways, you know, albeit perhaps not for control of the company, but uh, but with respect to uh, policies of the of the corporation, so is it time that the SEC looks again at some of these uh, rules uh, regarding disclosure? In that light, I, I think you know if we're if we're if we're doing looking at disclosure and all uh, for public companies, I also think we should always look at disclosure for for all our regulated entities to make sure that the rules still make sense in, in today's place. And I think there's a there's a real question um, where some of our rules and regulations were 
predicated on a market that is just different than it is today. And so should we be considering some of these other things when uh, we require certain disclosure? And again, it's important to note that we are not merit regulators here. Um, the, the states can decide what's a good or a bad corporation. Um, I am thoroughly involved in bureaucracy of setting processes and disclosure. Um, I don't want to ultimately uh, effectuate society uh, in a way uh, other than to provide material information for, for people or um, I'd say enforce laws and pre bring people to justice who, who violate those rules uh, and laws. So I, I, I don't want to put my thumb on the scale in that respect, but I do think if people are asking about disclosure, I think we should probably think about it with respect to uh, a, certainly a large uh, aspect of the marketplace. Thank you. Um, let's turn briefly to uh, shareholder proposals. Um, and uh, Justice Steele, back when I was a commissioner, the SEC entered into an agreement with uh, Delaware, and there was even a uh, you know, statute that was passed uh, by the legislature to enable uh, questions to be certified by the SEC to uh, the Supreme Court of Delaware regarding corporate governance. Um, and we at least put one, uh, I remember, um, to you all at the time. Um, has that been used uh, since? And is it, uh, do you think it's, uh, would be a, it, with all of these questions circulating around, uh, do you think that the Delaware Supreme Court is still open to, uh, uh, you know, being a, a source of information for the SEC and that sort of thing? Yeah. Yes, I think it's the answer to that. In, in fact, uh, the legislature has decided that the court should be. And in my history, now 51 years of practicing in Delaware, the Delaware courts don't view themselves as social policy managers. They get their direction on social policy from the constitution of the state and the state legislative acts. Uh, yes, as long as two things occur. First, the parties that submit the question to the Delaware Supreme Court, or to use the correct term, certify the question, much like a question certified from the Federal District Court, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, or whatever, they have to agree on the facts. The court's not gonna get involved if there's a substantial difference on the underlying fact situation. And secondly, if it's solely a question of Delaware law, I think the Delaware Supreme Court would take the certification if the SEC requested it. I don't think there's a doubt about that. After all, that the Supreme Court's job is to clarify Delaware law. I mean, and if, if we can do it for the high court of the other states, for the federal court system and bankruptcy court as well, um, why not the SEC? It's very important to us because of our interplay, staying in our own lane at all times with the uh, SEC. Well, and the reason why I bring that up is, uh, Commissioner, uh, you know, obviously some of the discussion now is to look again at 14A8 and some of the things that were done, uh, you know, in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, and so as far as, uh, you know, if, if uh, some new proposals ever come up with respect to uh, you know, that crepes upon uh, uh, organic uh, corporate law of Delaware or other states, uh, you know, that might be an interesting thing to, to have uh, questions certified over. But going with respect to 14A, obviously that the the process has been weaponized by what I like to call politicized uh, investors. Um, do you think that the, the rules that uh, uh, you all adopted are sufficient to protect uh, shareholders overall from, uh, you know, the, the 
squeaky wheels, the ones who are um, not necessarily representative of all the shareholders where their proposals get uh, voted down year after year. So thanks for that. And um, I appreciate following uh, Cecile's discussion of this. So I, I'd say for those less familiar, Rule, Rule 14.8 governs the process for a shareholder to have a proposal included in a company's proxy statement for consideration. As I talked before, we're not, we don't decide the merits uh, uh, of whether a shareholder proposal is a good idea or not. That's up to the other shareholders to do. But what we do do is if, if people want to submit a shareholder proposal and a company's proxy and ultimately have other shareholders pay for it, uh, we require certain thresholds of ownership uh, to, and I'd say um, levels of uh, interest by other uh, shareholders uh, if you want to resubmit them um, for uh, inclusion in the pro company's proxy statement. And this is a rule that has been around for decades and consistently been reviewed and tweaked uh, to, I think, uh, reduce the potential for abuse and in some cases abuse. And it has, the rule ultimately is very beneficial um, for certainly the shareholder proponent. They have the ability to engage with companies, management, directors, that's important, other shareholders. Um, and it's something, frankly, you know, I think uniquely American and fantastic because uh, nowhere else in our other regimes do we have that ability. But I wanna be clear in, in my views, the rule was never intended to empower a few shareholders to repeatedly impose uh, direct and indirect costs for pursuing a proposal that ultimately garners very, uh, very little support. Uh, frankly, costs that are borne by all shareholders. And what we did recently is we've made some, I would say, incredibly modest changes uh, to the, the thresholds. And you know, I, I want to give a few points on that. And I think I, I'd say if you look at uh, something that we we cited, there was a study uh, from uh, a year, several years ago, where we tracked all individual uh, shareholder proposals, and five individuals were responsible for 78% of all sh individual shareholder proposals that companies saw. And, you know, I certainly believe that here, everyone has a right to their soapbox in America, um, but the key piece is uh, you're not entitled for other people to pay for it. And so what we tried to do is we tried to align the long-term interests of uh, the shareholders with those who are the proponents. And the threshold for being able to submit a shareholder proposal is, is actually, you know, I think, uh, objectively low. Prior to our changes, uh, it required that someone own $2,000 worth of stock in a company for one year. And to further align, I'd say the long-term interest, one of the changes we made was saying, you have to hold it for three years. Showing, I think, a longer term interest in a company and not just an interest in preventing or providing a, uh, a, a proposal to a company based on what arguably would be a very short-term uh, investment horizon. We made other changes to this, um, uh, including providing for uh, you know people who want to hold it for one year, they just have to own a little bit more and same for two years. But all of these changes were predicated on the idea that we want to ensure that the system isn't uh, creating you know perverse incentives for some and ultimately causing a cost of both expense uh, of money and time, uh, not only for boards, management, but really ultimately other investors. I'm hopeful that we let these uh, these changes uh, take effect. People see if there's actually an impact or not, because a lot of work went into this, uh, a lot of study, a lot of effort, and a lot of expertise. Well, speaking uh, of uh, you know a few people trying to drive uh, the train there for everyone else, um, you know we're seeing that uh, arguably with respect to some of the 
requests for um, more ESG disclosure, especially on the environmental side, uh, where a lot of uh, what people are asking for is uh, speculative uh, disclosures by companies based on all sorts of assumptions and scenario modeling and, and that sort of thing. You know, arguably, uh, if the SEC were to, uh, were to require some of this, it could uh, maybe fall under forward-looking statements uh, uh, language from uh, the PSLRA, um, but uh, you know, but arguably not as well. And so, companies obviously uh, and shareholders too, I would think, uh, would be very concerned about the. Um, uh, the potential liability and um, of, of uh, people pursuing that. You think that the current rules are sufficient uh, to cover uh, what some of these demands might be, or do you think that um, Congress would have to, or SEC uh, would have to look at that? So look, I think I, I, I come back to, I've always believed that our rules have this concept of materiality and public issuers are already required to provide information that's material. So will we need additional, you know, is there a need for additional line item uh, prescriptive disclosure and on some of these things? I think the question is, what are people looking for? And I don't think that there's a universal consensus. And I think the problem, um, you know, it's too easy to basically make this uh, not only a partisan issue, but a personal issue where you're if you're on one side of uh, ESG disclosure, that either means you're you're a, you know, a cave person um, or that you're an enlightened person or one's on the side of right and one side of the wrong. It's, it, it has nothing to do with actual discussion or debate. It actually cheapens it and, and makes it, frankly, less uh, fruitful. I think the question we ultimately have to have is, are companies providing material information to investors that they need for investment decisions? And to your point about, you know, some of these line item disclosures that people are considering, I, I think when I talk to investors and companies, there's still a lot of trepidation about, you know, um, putting things in their SEC filings because, A, they're unsure of uh, the granularity that people are, uh, you know, that they want to provide. And two, it's still a nascent field. Um, I think businesses are constantly trying to figure out what's best for themselves and their long-term holders. And there's been various, I think, benchmarks that have been put in front of them. Is it carbon neutral 2050? Is it 2035? Is it one and a half degrees? Is it two and a half degrees? Is it the Paris Climate Accord? I mean, you know, are electric vehicles going to be completely electric by 2035? It's There's no necessarily... Um, moving consensus, and that's because things are still being worked out. So if we are to go down the line of, I'd say, line item disclosure, I think we have to be very weary of the fact that this could be completely outdated in several years. And so I am for a continuation of our principle-based approach. If we want to provide guidance, what we hear and think is material, then I think let's have that discussion and actually kind of go down to that level of what actually people are looking for that influences their asset allocation and voting decisions. So I think, you know, a conversation needs to be had, will be had, but I certainly don't feel like it's dispositively decided now. And I certainly don't feel like anyone has made the case to me that one set of required disclosure that uh, needs to be uh, in place for all companies, and it makes sense for all investors. Again, I'm very open to that conversation. In fact, if anyone on this call or others has an idea what that is, please 
I implore you, please meet with me. I'd love to hear it. And, and frankly, the staff as well. Well, thank you. We're about out of time, but let me close one last question to Justice Steele. Um, the Delaware uh, law now provides for a public benefit corporation. Uh, and uh, could that be, if you peer into your crystal ball, do you think that that might well be an answer to some of the people who are advocating uh, you know, for a company to have one particular goal versus, uh, um, you know, others who, uh, who feel strongly that they want to have provision for their retirement and old age and good dividends and, and all of that. Yeah, with, with a former commissioner and a current commissioner here, I have to be perfectly candid when I answer that. And I thought that's what public benefit corporations were all about in the first place much like an LLC to a corporation, an alternative entity to do it the way you want to do it under circumstances that attract you, that you think are going to be successful without imposing your will on others in another arena. So I thought that's what public benefit corporations were about. Delaware was very quick to adopt them, really under um, re leadership of uh, Rick Alexander, a Delaware lawyer, and it's, it's a popular method that is an alternative and ought to be explored by those who want to impose their worldview on others. So, well, uh, well, we are, we're at time here and I really, we could go on for a lot longer. There are lots of very good questions that have been posed by the audience and, uh, but I want to be mindful of everybody's time, but, uh, so maybe we can continue this. Uh, we can ask the Federalist uh, Society to, uh, we, maybe we can do an encore performance. Nick, maybe uh, if you don't mind, but uh, anyway, I want to be mindful of everybody's time and, uh, and uh, you know, thank you all very much for, uh, for gathering today and very much uh, appreciate uh, Commissioner Roisman and Justice Steele for uh, your time and, and thoughts today. Thanks, Mr. Adkins. I'll just offer thank you, everyone. everyone on behalf of the Federalist Society for joining in today's discussion and to our audience for calling in all your great questions. Uh, we'll look into doing a second one of these. And thank you all very much. Uh, just a reminder to our audience, be checking your emails on our website for announcements about upcoming events. And we welcome your feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. And with that, thank you all again for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.